to the book of Galatians chapter 4. I was almost going to say Colossians. Today we have for our text Galatians chapter 4. And uh, I'll begin in verse 1, but our text for today, the text, our passage for our sermon is verses 4 and 5, but I'll read within the whole context. Verse 1, and I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I'll stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day once again as we gather together to worship you in spirit and truth. O Holy Spirit, we look to you now that you would anoint our minds and our hearts that we may hear from you today. Open our hearts that we may believe in the gospel, that we may understand your word. We pray that this passage today would would reveal to us, O your your glory, O Lord, the glory of your birth, the glory of of your incarnation, the glory of salvation, and that we would behold, O Lord, the joyfulness of this. Father God, we ask, O Lord, not only for our hearts and minds, but I pray for myself, Father God, that you carry me along, Holy Spirit, and use me as a vessel of honor to glorify you and speak forth your truth. And now prepare our hearts that you would illuminate this passage before us in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting because we are certainly living in times that are perilous, and we talk about this often. And in those times of darkness, Christians can often become discouraged, disenfranchised, disillusioned. It's easy to become hopeless when the whole world seems to have gone mad, and Christ is indeed not welcome in a modern society. Uh, But when you come to a time like Christmas, you think that people are welcoming to Jesus, and on a cursory sense, uh, people recognize a Christian holiday, and, and, and yet Christmas has become nothing more, I would say, than a cultural holiday. Christ is no more welcome today than when Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem, than they were not welcome anywhere. But yet, as dark as things look, it's often when things are the darkest when God's light shines the brightest. And it's often when times are the darkest when the expectation of God's people is the highest. And as dark as things may seem today, they were much darker at the time when Christ was born. You go back to the first century Palestine for the average Jewish person living in those days. It seemed very bleak and hopeless in those times they were living in. Um, So much so that for the people of God who had long looked to the Bible and looked to the God who delivered them from Pharaoh and from the tyranny of Egypt... Where was God now as they suffered greatly? Now think about this. During the time in the first century, for the average Jewish person, they were living under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was unkind to the Jewish people. They abused the Jewish people. They oppressed 
the Jewish people. And for 400 years, the Jewish people suffered oppression by foreign adversary after foreign adversary. The priesthood and the temple were utterly corrupt and accosted by a hypocritical and scandalous family that used the temple only for their own personal gain. Herod, who was a puppet king installed by the Roman Empire, was ruthless and cunning and brutal and cruel, and he would use and abuse the Jewish people for his own ends and murder anyone who got in his way. It seemed, if you lived in that time, as if all hope was lost. Where was the God of Israel? Where was the great God of of times past who parted the Red Sea? Where was the great God who, through the prophet Elijah, uh, overthrew the powers of of Ahab and Jezebel? Where was this great God who had risen up King David to lead Israel in triumph? Where was God in the 400 years of darkness? And yet in the middle of that darkness, a light burst forth. The light of the world came into the world and the darkness comprehended it not. Not only did the stars align over Bethlehem, shining a great light over where the Son of God was to come into this world, but indeed the light of the world was shining forth and his light was beginning to shine in the hearts of men. This is something I want to stress today that is important for us to understand that no matter what's going on in the world, God is sovereign and in control of everything. Even the darkness, the Lord is sovereign over. And it's in that darkness often that God uses as the, as the landscape in which to uh, um, beautify and glorify himself in that darkness. And so today we want to look at this passage before us because it tells us something about God's intervention. It tells us about when God sent his son to the world. And it tells us that it happened at just the right time. And see, that's that's one of the main themes of our messages today, that God's timing is always right on time. He's never too late and he's never too early. God is always on time. We may rush. We may want him to act quickly. We live as finite beings in a very uh, um, small, constrained universe, constrained by time and space. But God is unlimited. He's not limited by anything. God exists outside of time and space. And so when God intervenes and comes into time and space and invades time and space, it is always the right time. And so with that, we're going to look at four things that describe the coming of the Lord into the world. Number one, when he arrived. Number two, where did he come from? Number three, how did he get here? And number four, why did he come? Those are our four points for today's sermon. The first point is, when did it happen? When did Christ come into the world? Well, we date it back about 2,000 years ago, 2020. We date our calendar, the 2022, based on the birth of Christ, give or take a few years. And so we understand it's been quite a while ago. But historically and biblically speaking, it was what the scripture says in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world, in the fullness of time. What does that mean? Well, that phrase has the understanding of something that's filling up, like filling up a bathtub. And what it's telling us is that God is sovereign over time itself And that at the right moment in history, according to his decrees, he acted. The time had met its 
point in which he marked out in history. It means that God had destined and appointed this day before the foundations of the world, and we arrived at that point. The filling point had reached the tip. The coming of the Son of God into the world was not an accident. It was not reactionary. It was perfectly planned by God in eternity. So we see that from man's perspective, it may seem as if God was too late, but God had prepared this very moment. Now I want you to think about this because the people of God had been expectant for a very long time. Ever since God promised Eve that her seed would crush and bruise the head of the serpent, that his heel would crush the head of the serpent, God's people had been patiently waiting and expecting God to intervene and reverse the curse of sin ever since. For thousands of years, the people of God, uh, born from Abraham and Sarah, hoped and looked forward to that day. Every Israelite woman would wonder, is my son going to be the one who would crush the head of the serpent? And throughout Israel's history, that hope is always high. But as you get to the time of the first century in, in Palestine, people are beginning to lose hope. They're beginning to capitulate. They're beginning to fall away. A lot of Jewish people are surrendering to the greater Hellenistic cultures. We see the party of the Sadducees having great dominance over Jerusalem. They've lost hope in the scripture. They lost hope in God. But yet there is always a faithful remnant looking forward to what God's going to do. And from God's point of view, there are two important factors. Number one is the historical context. This was the perfect time that God chose to send his son into the world. When you look historically at the time that Christ came into the world, it couldn't have been better. It was the time where the Roman Empire was at its apex. Augustus Caesar was the emperor of Rome. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. And Augustus uh, brought what we call peace to the world at the time. It's called Pax Romana. All war had ceased. Rome had conquered most of the Western world, and under the Roman Empire, there was a sense of peace and stability and security. And it was during that time that allowed the Christian message of the gospel to flourish and to spread at a time like no other. Not only that, but the time of the Roman Empire also had one of the great marvels of the ancient world, and that was the the highways and, and roads of the Roman Empire. You ever heard the old expression, all roads lead to Rome? It was in that historical context that no other, no other empire in the ancient world, no other civilization in the ancient world had such a, a sophisticated system of roadways that were, were ahead of its time in terms of engineering. And what it did was it allowed the Roman military to move rapidly when there was a necessity to defend the Roman Empire. But on the occasion when Rome was not at war, and at this time, when it's under peace, it allowed people to travel all throughout the Roman Empire with security and safety and to be able to go from town to town. It was, it was very much what we live in today. It was a, a modern marvel. Yet it was through these roads that the gospel was able to flourish all throughout the ancient world. It was also a time of great clarity. There was one common language spoken in that day, and that was Koine Greek. The word Koine literally means common. It was the common language. Just like English is the language that the universal language spoken in the world today, uh, no matter what country you go to, people know some English. It's the common language. It's the most used language in the world. In the ancient world, 
Greek was the most commonly used language. And so this was a time where God could send out his message in one language under this empire where everybody had a common language and could travel easily and they could understand God's word. But it was also a time of futility, particularly in religion. In Acts 17, remember when Paul came to Athens and he saw all the different statues to the different gods and he was uh, grieved in his soul. He was grieved about uh, uh, all of this idolatry. And what did he say? You know, he, he, he appealed to them. He said, I saw the statue to the unknown God. There was this futility of the pagans. They were without hope. They worshipped in futility all of these uh, um, deities that they had created and devised and that left them with a sense of, well, where are we going? Will the gods be pleased? Will they punish us? And so the gospel brings a message that there is one God, one creator, and one mediator between man and God, the Lord Christ Jesus. Combine all of these elements and you have a particularly unique time in history when God intervenes and with the message of his salvation. It couldn't have been a better time. But also from a biblical point of view, there is God's prophetic calendar. If there's one thing we learn is that God foreordains all that comes to pass and he tells us about it. Now, last year I was preaching through the prophet Daniel and I remember we came to Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 through 26 about the 70 weeks prophecy. Now, I'm not going to rehash all that. That's a lot of technicalities but one thing, depending on whatever view you take about it, the prophecy cannot be denied that it brings us approximately from the time that Daniel received the prophecy or the time of Cyrus to approximately the birth or the death of Christ. It is remarkable, the timing. It, it tells us that God had, had given Daniel a vision that God was going to send his son who was going to bring his son into this world and it came to pass. But we also look at the prophetic utterances in Isaiah 9, or in Isaiah 7. And all these prophecies tell us that God is going to intervene. He's going to do something. And it's going to happen in his timetable. And so in this history, this time in history, God had intervened. Now, I think it's important that we understand something here, is that we as God's people need to be patient. Christ came once, but he's coming back again. And just as in his first coming, it seemed like things were very dark and dismal and hopeless, that's exactly what the Bible said is going to happen right before his second coming. Things are going to become dark and dismal and hopeless. Once again, people will grow faint. It'll say, it says in Matthew 24, in those days that, it, you know, even if it was possible, even the elect would fall away. But it's not possible. And God's elect will hold on, but it'll be so trying. It'll be so difficult that even God's people want to fall away in those days. And we're seeing that great falling away take place. The Bible tells us before the second coming of Christ, there will be a great falling away. But as bad as things get, we have to remember God is patient. Second Peter 3, verses 8 through 9 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We wish for Christ's return, don't we? Come, Lord Jesus, come even now. But God is not in a rush. The day has been marked out in his calendar. And he's going to come when he is ready. But in the meantime, he's giving us a chance to repent. He's giving us a chance to repent. So the second point we want to look at, so we know when it happened. Now the next 
question is, what happened? What happened in Bethlehem? What happened 2,000 years ago when Christ came into the world? Well, it tells us here, God sent forth his son. All right, God sent forth his son. So this tells us not only what happened, but where did he come from, right? So there's two questions that are answered here. What happened and where did Jesus come from? Did Jesus just appear in the world? Was this the beginning of Christ? Or did Christ have a pre-existence? This is something, as I said, was a struggle in the early church. But it's important to understand that the word sent here, the word sent in the Greek, which is exapastaline, literally means to be sent out from a previous state. That's what the word means, to be sent out from a previous state. And what Paul is doing here is making sure that those who read his letter understand that the life of Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem, but that he always existed as the eternal son of God in heaven with the father. God sent the son. And this tells us that just as the father and son existed uh, together eternally forever, Jesus was begotten and not made, but he is of one essence with the father and dwelt with the father and the father and the son made a covenant that the son would be the agent to come into the world to reconcile man to God. Now I want you to think about that. Did you ever wonder, like, did you exist before you were born? Did any of your kids ever ask you, where was I before I was born? Well, the truth is we didn't exist before we were born. We came into existence when God brought life to the creation of a group of cells that join together and begin to multiply. God gives the soul and we become a human being. Life begins at conception. But I want you to realize this, that before Jesus was born of Mary, he always existed as the person of the Son of God. That's the, that's the concept of the incarnation. Now, just to give you some biblical background to this, let's look at the Gospel of John, which I think tells us a lot about the pre-existence of Christ. And I have a few Bible verses I want to read. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it's probably very well known. In the beginning was the Word. That Word is Christ. It's capital W, the Logos, the very expression of God himself. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the one through whom God created all things. He is both God and with God. He is God the Son with God the Father. He is one with the Lord. And so we understand that Jesus is not this created being that suddenly came into existence, but he eternally always existed with God. When Nicodemus uh, was questioning his, his teaching on being born again in the new birth, what did Jesus say to him? In John chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You know what he's telling Nicodemus? I'm from heaven. You're from earth. You can't get what I'm saying because we're from two different realities. If you can't figure out what I'm telling you, which is very plain and simple, you will never understand heavenly realities. In John chapter 8, verse 23, 
when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, he says to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that if you die in your sins, for unless you believe in me, that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What is Jesus saying to them? He's saying, I'm going somewhere where you can't go. Where are you going? I'm, I'm going where I came from. You're from here. And unless you repent and believe in me, you will die in your sins. That means you will be separated from me forever. Jesus originates from heaven. And then, of course, I think the greatest verse in John's gospel that tells us about Christ's preexistence in heaven is John 17, 4 through 5. In his high priestly prayer before he's about to die, he's praying to God the Father. He's praying about his, his upcoming uh, uh, atoning work. He's praying for his people. He's praying for those who would believe in the future. But notice what he says to, the, to his father uh, at that moment with the impeding of his death and suffering. He says this in verse four through five, I have glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Hallelujah. Jesus existed in heaven with the Father. He was glorified in, the pre in his presence with all the angels before anything ever existed. The point is, Jesus' is divine origin, he was sent into this world. He didn't just come into existence, he was sent by the Father. Now, the condescension of Christ into the world is often described by theologians as the first step of Christ's humiliation. When we talk about the humiliation of Christ, we're talking about that he who is the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who is, who is God himself, the very God of the Bible, who reigns and rules and created everything that existed. He created you and me. He created the wood that these pews are made of. He created the, the, the dirt that formed the cement of this building. God in the Son created everything. And he left that heavenly throne room and came here to be part of his creation. He took on human flesh, this this deteriorating flesh that turns to dust when we die. He took it on. He took on the weakness of the human nature and he dwelt amongst us. That's humiliation. That's degradation. And it was only the first step because Christ lived a life of suffering. He knew what it was to be weak. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to, to feel rejected. He knew what it was to have to be hurt by people he loved. He knew what it was to be, to be treated unfairly. He knew what it was to, to suffer unkindness. He knew what it was to be tortured and to be bullied and to be beat up and to be brutally tortured. And he knew what it was to die. He tasted death for us. God became a man to die the very thing we fear the most, the very, the very concept that as human beings we want to avoid talking about or thinking about, death. It's terrifying, the cessation of life. God came into this world and died for you and me. I want you to think about that. 
tells us that Christ came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. This humiliation of Christ is also a reminder for us that we are to have the same mind of Christ. If Christ humbled himself and was willing to degrade himself to such an extent, then how should we be? Are we so proud and arrogant and have our chest so puffed out that we think everybody owes us and we demand uh, uh, people serve us and we demand uh, people bow to our whims? Who are we? Listen to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the cross. Jesus came from heaven and he came into this world as an act of humiliation, the beginning of a humiliation that would only lead to his exaltation when God would raise him from the dead. Thirdly, how did Christ come into the world? How did Christ come to the world? That's the big question, right? So we know when he came, we know where he came from. How did he come here? And that's what really Christmas is all about, right? It's, it's understanding the incarnation. It says here that he was born of a woman, born under the law. Now, this is important because this idea that he was born of a woman was not only prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 that he would be born of a virgin, but it was imperative that the Son of God be actually born of a woman. Not only to fulfill the prophecy that God gave to Isaiah 7, but it goes back even further to Genesis 3.15 when God promised that it was the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. It must be that way. And that makes Christ both fully human and fully God. He can fully represent us to God as our high priest because he has a human nature, but yet at the same time, he is fully God. The two natures are joined in one, the hypostatic union. To be the son of man, he had to be made like us in our infirmities and weaknesses. He had to be tempted like we are, subject to weariness, subject to hunger, pain, so that he can be our faithful high priest. But as the son of God, he had to be perfectly sinless, pleasing to the Father, able to have access to the Father. His deity makes it possible to be perfectly obedient, perfectly sinless, impeccable, and perfectly pleasing to God. Thus, there is one mediator who could represent us, that is the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. But the virgin birth was necessary for uniting full deity and humanity in one person. It was the means by which God had designed to send his son into the world. What wisdom, what, what grace, what, what wonder. Now, I want you to think about this. God could have sent his son into the world in a variety of ways. God could have created a human body in heaven for the Lord, and he could have descended right out of the clouds and come to this world. But it would have been impossible for anyone to believe that he was truly human, nor would he have partaken of the Adamic nature, which we all have. He would not have been physically part of the human race, and because of that, he wouldn't have been able to redeem us. God could have, 
allow Jesus to be born by two human parents, a human mother and a human father, and at some point imparted the divine nature miraculously to him. But the problem is his origin would have been like us in every way. By having a human mother and a human father, he would have been just another ordinary man, and the curse of Adam would have continued to progenate through him. When we think of these two possibilities, it makes us realize why God in his wisdom ordained the virgin birth. It was because in the man Christ Jesus, God combined both natures. By being born of a woman and conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus bypasses the curse of Adam. His divine origin allow him not to inherit original sin and therefore become perfectly spotless and blameless, thus becoming a new Adam, forming a new human race. And therefore, he is our head. But there's another thing that tells us how he came into the world. It says he was born under the law. It was important that Christ was not only born a human being, but that he was born under the law. What does the law mean? Well, the law here is describing the law of Moses, summarized in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, but expanded in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. This was the constitution, if you will, of ancient Israel. Just like the law of the land in America is the constitution of the United States, the law of the land in ancient Israel was the law of Moses. It not only governed the theocracy of God's people, but it also governed the people of God before him. It was, it was how we were held accountable. And the law of God was not just for Israel, but it was for all mankind. You see, through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Through the law comes a revelation of who God is, his character, his righteousness. You see, when you see the law of God, when you see the Ten Commandments, what it reveals to us is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the perfection of God's personhood. And so by conforming to the law of God, you become like God. You, you conform yourself to the character of God. But the law could not bring us to God. What the law did was condemn us. The law shows us how utter failures we are. The law doesn't save us. You can't get right with God by keeping the law. All the law tells you is that you keep failing and failing and failing. That's why it says to us in Romans 8, 3, 4, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The law condemns us, but Christ came into this world under the law that he may fulfill the law for us. How did he fulfill it? In two ways. One, through his act of obedience. Christ fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying every jot and tittle of the law of God. Think about that. Every jot and tittle of the law was fulfilled in Christ. He never once deviated from God's law. He never once broke the law. He never once sinned. He never fell short. Jesus lived an impeccably perfect life. Why? He did it for you and me. He did it because you and I cannot do it. 
and his perfect record gets imputed to us when we come to faith in him. He gives us that perfect record. It's a gift, the gift of his righteousness. And therefore, when we stand before God, we don't stand just as forgiven, but we stand as righteous because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the gift of Christmas. But secondly, it's also his passive obedience. You see, the law demanded the death penalty for lawbreakers. When you go through the Old Testament, it is amazing how many laws required the death penalty. A lot of people died under the Old Covenant because the, the very, it's very simple. Whoever breaks the law dies. God takes sin seriously and the only penalty for sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift in God, of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. And so with the condemnation of the law, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by dying in our place. He fulfilled God's plan and thus fulfilled the law. And that brings me to my final point. Why he came, verse five. He came to redeem those who are under the law so that we may receive adoption as sons. He did it for you and me. The truth of the matter is all humanity is under the condemnation of the law, not just Israel. We are all under bondage to the law. Listen to Romans chapter 3, 19. It says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Think about that. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The whole world is under the yoke of the law. The whole world is under the condemnation of the law. And that is because everyone is lawless. We've all broken the law. James 2 tells us if you've broken one of the commandments, you've broken all of them, and we're all guilty, we're all condemned, and we all have a divine appointment. And as Jesus told the Pharisees, if you don't have Christ, if you're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will die in your sins. You will take your sins with you into the courtroom of God. You will face God, and you will be condemned and judged and punished forever in hell. But Christ came, he took on human flesh, and he did it to redeem us from the law. The word redeem means to set free. It means to purchase back. It means that Christ is taken back what belongs to him. As human beings, God created us in his image and we were lost by sin and we belong to this world and Satan, but we are his property. And when Christ dies for us, he redeems us and takes us back. We belong to him. He redeems us from under the law. He came under the law so we could be set free. Because we're in Galatians, I'm going to circle back to Galatians chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. And I want you to look at how this is described to give you context because this is all within the context. Verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The curse of God, the anathema of God was to be devoted to eternal destruction. 
And that's the curse that lays on every one of us. Verse 11 says, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us. This is the redemption from the curse of the law. How did this redemption take place? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we may receive the promised spirit through faith. God had promised Abraham long ago that through his seed all nations will be blessed. The word nations translates Gentiles. It means all people in the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed, but the curse of sin has to be removed. The only way the curse of sin could be removed is that Jesus took the curse upon himself. You see, in the Bible, it tells us that to be hung on a tree is to be cursed by God. It was scandalous. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he was nailed to a tree. That's why Peter refers to it that way, because he came under the curse of God for you and me. Now go to Galatians 3.23, and look what it says. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were all slaves. We were in bondage under the law. How were we in bondage? Because we were trying harder, doing better. We kept trying to do better and, and, and please God and keep the law, and we just couldn't do it. No matter how hard we tried, it was never good enough. And that's bondage because the condemnation tells us we're no good and we'll never be good enough. And so we continue in our sin. But it tells us, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. That means the law kept us in line. It kept us, it kept us from being completely lost in order that we may be what? Justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are, and here's the key, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, but there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, nor male or female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's the adoption. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from being captive under the law and set us free. So now we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. We can claim to be a descendant of Abraham. We could claim that we belong to God's people. We're part of his his holy people. We're part of Israel. Not because we're by nature Israelites, but because God adopted us. He grafted us in and made us part of his covenant people through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Christmas, isn't it? We bring this all back to The purpose of Christmas is that God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have the gift of eternal life. That's the gift, eternal life. If you didn't get anything for Christmas today, you got the greatest gift in the world because you have eternal life. That's all you'll ever need. If there ever comes a day you lose it all, you lose a shirt off your back, still the wealthiest person in the world, you have eternal life. It's the life of God. 
And that will go with you forever. It's eternal because it's from God. But it must be received by faith. It's also a call, and I conclude with this, to repentance. I conclude with this. This may be your last Christmas. Do you ever think of that? This may be the last Christmas you ever celebrate. God doesn't promise you another Christmas. I don't care how old or how young you are. I read stories all week. I read of a 17-year-old boy who died this week. I read of a 45-year-old UFC fighter, guy fit in the prime of his life. I was reading about it last night. 45, his heart just failed and he died. Paul's 93, he's closer to eternity than all of us probably. And he's still kicking stronger than all of us. But the bottom line is this. This may be your last Christmas. The question is, are you ready to meet God? Are you prepared for your divine appointment? If you die today and you were to stand in God's courtroom, would your sins be blotted out, forgiven? Would you have acceptance with God? Or would you find that you are with sin unforgiven, would you die in your sins? Would you face eternal judgment forever because no matter how much you heard it, you refused and failed to believe in the gospel, to repent of your sin. You chose willingly to rebel against God, to play church, to think you fool God and fool others, and then you find on judgment day you've only fooled yourself. This may be your last Christmas, I urge you not only to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but to receive Christ. Receive the gift of eternal life. Believe in him. Trust in him. Turn from your sins. And may the joy and the hope of Christmas, may the light of Christ shine in your hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word message we all need to hear I pray that you would indeed help us to know that in the fullness of time not only did you bring your son into this world but in the fullness of time you will bring us home I pray that we would all be prepared to meet you Lord and that we would take this message to heart not just have it roll off our backs like water off a duck's back but that we would truly believe we pray this in Jesus name amen